You're listening to the Living Word Church Podcast. To learn more about Living Word Church and our service times, visit us online at livingwordli.org. Today's message comes from our lead pastor, Doug Jansen. Hey, we're thrilled you guys are with us today. We're continuing our evidence series, and uh, we've just been enjoying our time talking about all the evidence that there is to prove that Jesus is alive and well. You know, uh, last summer when the pandemic was going on kind of full swing and we couldn't go a lot of places, our family often does some staycation type stuff we just couldn't do. So often we will head out to like a Mets game or something, or we'll go to the movies, but all that stuff was closed. And so we had to kind of get creative. So my sons and I one day were like, what if we just go play some pranks on some people? Like what if we just kind of go entertain ourselves that way? And so we pranked first my sister. Uh, we, we have this mannequin as a family that we send back and forth. I'm really not gonna get into all the details, but uh, we have a picture here of taking the mannequin and kind of dropping it off on their basketball hoop one day. And then that same day, we went to our worship pastor, Andrew's house, and we saran wrapped his car, which was fun. And then we went to my dad's house and we filled his flower beds with balloons. Um, and then we went to another friend's house and we forked their lawn. And we went to my brother-in-law Anthony's house and we filled their garage with, with some balloons. I think we have a shot of that one there. Hopefully on the screen you guys can see that. But um, we just had a blast doing it and really enjoyed it. But I didn't tell you the most important detail that we were the worst pranksters in the world because we kept getting busted. Like when you're pranking somebody, you're not supposed to be caught. They're not supposed to know you did it. But we kept on getting busted at my sister's house. Her and her husband were out, but they had babysitters watching the kids. And they got so upset because they saw like bodies around. They actually turned all the lights off and the babysitter grabbed the bat ready to go ahead and do what they had to do. At Andrew's house, he was still living at home at the time. Him and Steph had an apartment at the house. And his mom came out as we were saran wrapping the car and was like, like, what are you doing? Like, what's going on out here? At my dad's house, we thought we really got away, but there was a ring doorbell cam, of course, that caught us. And at my brother-in-law's house, we never got caught in person, and we were so good. We were like, yes, we made it. And then come to find out, when they walked into the garage and saw what had been done, they just said one word, Jansen's. Like, they just knew it was us. And, you know, in this series, we've been talking about how, man, there is just evidence, a trail of evidence left that Jesus is alive. And, you know, when we went out on those pranks, we kind of left a trail of evidence. And, and, man, God so faithfully has left us a beautiful trail of evidence to show that this stuff we talk about with Jesus can be taken seriously. That as we go through ups and downs in life, we can take Jesus seriously. And, you know, this last 18 months has been a crazy time. Uh, Nicole Summers sent my wife and I a picture here. You guys can check this out. Uh, just somebody was saying, you know, these last 18 months haven't been too difficult. And uh, it says there on the bottom, oh, it must have gotten cut off. Awesome. Kind of ruins the joke. But it says somebody is like 24, you know, Ethan, 24 years old, you know. So it's kind of aged us here in this last season, all that we've been through. You know, and, and in this series, we've been talking about how the evidence that there is to support the fact that Jesus is alive is kind of like a chair, and you and I would never sit on just this part of the chair or just this piece of the chair. We want the whole chair. We want it to support the weight of our lives, right? And, you know, we've been talking about how the evidence that there is to trust Jesus kind of comes together like a chair. There's all these different pieces that can support the weight of our lives. There's all these different pieces that can show us, yes, Jesus can be trusted, this idea of a resurrected Savior, Savior of the world, the Son of God, come in the flesh to rescue you and I from our sins and make us his own we can trust it because there's just so much evidence so week after week we've been putting different pieces of the chair together the first week you saw that the evidence points to God when you think about the natural explanation for origin of life and quality of life 
We discovered the evidence points to God. In week two, we found that truth and power are found in Jesus alone. In week three, we saw sacrifice and substitution are the story of the entire Bible. In week four, we talked about the prophecies and how they're powerful evidence that Jesus came back from the dead. In week five, we talked about the idea of the eyewitnesses and that the torture and the imprisonment and the, end up and the, and the martyrdom of the, of the eyewitnesses are powerful evidence that Jesus can be trusted. And so here in this series, we're going to keep on adding piece after piece. We're going to talk about our sixth piece here today until the chair is fully together. And we can see that just like that could support my weight, man, the evidence to, to support that Jesus is alive from the dead can support not only the weight of our lives, but the weight of our trust and our eternity. And so today we're going to grab another piece. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I pray this series is encouraging you. I pray that it's giving you reason to continue to believe in this amazing Savior. I pray it's giving you answers for other people. Like maybe there are people in your life that just need to know this good news, that there's hope, that there's a Savior and a rescuer. And I pray that you're getting some, some kind of almost like strategies on how to like say, oh, this is how I can defend my faith. This is how I can share my love for Jesus. And, and maybe there'll be questions back, but I have some answers, you know. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I really pray that this is helping you explore. It's helping you ask maybe some of the tough questions maybe you've never asked before in your life about this relationship with Jesus. And so I hope whether you're a follower of Jesus, you're not a follower of Jesus, we're all in together as we continue to explore the evidence about Jesus. And this is so important to talk about because our piece of the chair today we're going to talk about is why do we trust what the Bible says about Jesus? Like why trust that? And what I want you to see today is not just a bunch of information. I'm going to throw a bunch of knowledge at you, and I hope it equips you and strengthens your faith and encourages you, and, and your, your, your brain kind of processes it, processes it and grabs a hold of it. But I also want to encourage your heart, because if we can trust what the Bible has to say about Jesus, then we can trust Jesus. Like when he promises to be there for us. We can trust that. When he promises to put broken pieces of our lives back together, we can trust that. When he promises to provide for us, we can trust that. When he promises to save and rescue us eternally, we can trust that. So we have to know if what the Bible says about Jesus can be trusted. Can we take it seriously? Years ago, Time Magazine had an article on Christianity. Here's what they said. You can read it with me on the screen. In its first years, Christianity was spread across the Roman world amid deadly persecution through the inspired testimony of the disciples who had known Jesus. His story is told in the four Gospels of, Christ, of Christianity's New Testament, which most scholars regard as true to Christ's message, if not to the exact facts of his life. Could that be true? See, here's the thing. People love to discount the Bible, don't they? They love to discount the Bible as a source that should have a voice on this topic, which is so interesting, right? Because if you think about it, the eyewitness accounts in the Bible are the most important things for you and I to look at because they're eyewitness accounts. I want you to think for a second. Sometimes people will say, well, there's no way I would trust what the eyewitnesses in the, Bibles, in the Bible has to say because it's the Bible. Of course, they're going to say Jesus is back from the dead, right? But that's kind of like going to court, okay? And the lawyers presenting their different sides and the lawyers brought eyewitnesses up and they testified to something. And then someone pleading to the judge, looking at the eyewitnesses and saying, oh, you can't trust the eyewitnesses. They claimed they were there, you know? Like that's sometimes what people do with the Bible. You can't trust Matthew and John and Peter. Like they claimed they were there. And, and so today I wanna say, well, how do we know that we can trust what Peter and John and these other gospel writers and New Testament writers have to say? You know, 
Dude Perfect is this YouTube group, right? They go out there and they do all kinds of tricks and stuff. And one of the things they invented or made popular was the bottle flip. Does anybody in this room have a child who became obsessed with the bottle flip? You could just raise your hands a little bit, right? Okay, so basically what happens is, darn it. Okay, so you flip the bottle and it's supposed to land. And if you can get it to land, you flip the bottle and everybody celebrates and rejoices. And I have friends and actually my kids, man, they could do it over and over and over again. They've gotten up into hundreds of times just being able to flip this thing and land it. And you know, the dude perfect guys are Christians. And when we get to heaven, I will fight them for creating this. Okay. Because man, every four seconds in my house, you just heard smash, smash, isn't that right? Man, no, there won't be actually a fight in heaven. It's heaven, people. Come on. But, but I'll tell you what. I was, I was on vacation with my kids, and they took this to a whole other level. We went down to North Carolina, and there was this like two-story entryway, stairway thing, and they found a little ledge, and they went up on the ledge, and they were flipping it two stories down and trying to get it to land. This went on for days. And then one day there was celebration and rejoicing. They came running up the stairs. We landed it. They were so excited. Now, can you imagine if in that moment I looked back at them and said, you expect me to believe you landed it? You claim you were there and saw it. Well, that's what people do with the Bible. Matthew, come on, man. You want me to believe that Jesus rose back from the dead? You claim you were there. Why would I believe you? So today, what I want to do is say, why would we believe them? Let's give 24 reasons why we are going to trust what the Bible has to say about Jesus. And as I studied guys like Tim Keller, Mark Roberts, Jay Warner Wallace, Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, man, just some great ideas about why we can take the scriptures seriously. You're not going to be here till three o'clock. We're going to go through them quick. All right. First one, number one, and this is kind of like a main big point that's going to follow through with some sub points. The first one, there were tons of things the writers of the Bible wouldn't have done if Jesus, Jesus' resurrection was a hoax, okay? Now, if you're a note taker, you can go ahead and have fun and try and keep up with me. Probably not gonna happen today because I gotta fly through these quick. So I'm happy to email you my 24 reasons. Some of you might say, why not 25 reasons? Just to annoy you, okay? So <laughs> one of the main points here is why would the Bible, and why would the Bible writers say and do some of the things they said and did if this was all made up? If they're trying to get people to follow them and Jesus isn't really alive. So let's support that, that main thought with a bunch of points, okay? So here's the next one. They wouldn't have said that Mark and Luke wrote the books of Mark and Luke. If this was all fake and they were trying to just get these false kind of disciples to follow them, they never would have said Mark and Luke wrote Mark and Luke. Why? Because Mark and Luke weren't eyewitnesses to what happened. Okay, so Mark and Luke were learning from others and, and finding out from others what happened and then making their gospels up, right? If you're trying to get people to follow you and believe your story, even though it's a lie, then you're ascribing those gospels to much more popular names, maybe Mary or Thomas or somebody. In fact, Mary and Thomas did surface as gospels. Everybody say Gnostic gospels. If I could say it, I'll say it first, then you say it. Everybody say Gnostic gospels. All right, I'm glad no one made fun of me. It was like, not the Gospels. Okay, I appreciate that. But the Gnostic Gospels were written, and people said, oh, yeah, Mary wrote this one, and Thomas wrote that one. But you know what? As people began to explore it, they discovered that they were fakes. For a bunch of different reasons, you began to discover that those Gospels aren't the real deal. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the real deal. How do we know that? Well, I'll give you an example, all right? Years ago, I get a text from Joey, our youth pastor. He goes, hey, Doug, do you need gift cards? 
And like two seconds later, I get a text from Andrew. Do you need some gift cards? I'm like, hey, you guys want to be generous to give me some gift cards. Let's go. But why are you asking? Because they both got an email from Doug Jansen that said they needed, I needed gift cards. I was in a bind. I couldn't get them myself. Just go head out to the store, get some gift cards, scratch off the code, and take a picture and email it back. And so they said, do you need these gift cards? That's not me, man. Don't do it. Now, Joey let it go, but Andrew was like, I want to have some fun with this. And so he wrote the guy back. I was like, Doug, I'm so sorry you're going through this. I'm absolutely, I'll, I'll make it. And he's going back and forth with the guy and back and forth. He ends up making fake gift cards, like printing them out. And he takes pictures of them. And he's like, is this what you need? And the guy's like, yeah, but I need the other side with the codes on them and stuff. So Andrew then takes it a step further. And I have a picture here of the codes that he sent on the back. It's like, you're not Doug. And you see. You know, psych, and you got scammed, right? Now, why did this play out like this? Because Andrew looked into it, realized this was not true, and was able to determine that I hadn't actually sent those messages. I hadn't authored that. And in the same way, we're able to look at the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, and discover they didn't author that. Why? Well, for starters, Gospel of Thomas was written 175 A.D. at earliest. So Thomas is long gone by now. So clearly he hasn't written this. Things they said in these Gospels didn't line up. Like you'd be reading it like, there's no way that's Jesus. Jesus wouldn't do or say that. There's no way. And another reason is, Irenaeus, who was the disciple of Polycarp, which we talked about last week, who was the disciple of John, he wrote a 672-page book. Everybody say 672. I've never read a book that quite that long. 672 pages about why the Gospels of Mary and Thomas and the other Gnostic Gospels were not the real deal, but why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were the real deal. And this was, right, the friend of Polycarp who was the friend of John. So this is like early church father saying, I got 672 pages to tell you what is true and what is not. The only reason to say Mark and Luke wrote those Gospels is if Mark and Luke wrote those Gospels. Third one. They wouldn't have made women the first eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Don't throw anything at me, okay? <laughs> now, why do I say that? Because in the first century, women were not taken seriously. A woman's testimony was not admissible in court. She couldn't even testify. Couldn't even be an eyewitness. So think about this. If you're trying to get a bunch of people to believe that Jesus rose back from the dead when he really didn't, why would you make people who couldn't even testify in court the people who saw him first? No, you're going to name some very different people there. You're going to be like, oh, uh, Pilate was standing at the empty tomb. Pilate saw, and then he can tell all the Romans. And we're going to get one of the Jewish high priests. He was also standing at the empty tomb, and then he can tell all the Jews, right? If you're making this up, there's no way you place these women at the empty tomb. You place much more popular male figures of that day who would have great influence. Number four, they wouldn't have crucified their main character. Everybody say, Why? That was really bad. <laughs> I thought we were into this, people. Why? Because anyone crucified was known to be a criminal. Like, no one would take someone who was crucified seriously. If you were crucified, you were a dog. You were a beast of the earth. You, you were not a person. So if you're crucifying your main character, then it's almost certain that no one's going to take him seriously unless that's actually what happened? Verse 5, they wouldn't have tried to convince people of a resurrection. 
You know, I think often we think back, like first century people, oh, they were so unlearned, right? They were so unwise. They so easily would buy into something like this. No, they would actually be more skeptical than you and I. We're going to talk about that a little bit next week. But people would not have just been like, oh, yeah, Jesus rose back from the dead. How easy. No, they were more skeptical than we were. Many of us grew up in a world where we've been told whether we were in a Christian home or not around Easter time that somebody came back from the dead. And so you and I actually would be more open to that idea than someone in the first century because they didn't believe the dead raised back to life and it would have no bearing for it. And so they would have never said he had raised back from the dead. Number six, they wouldn't have painted the disciples in such a bad light. Anybody ever called you Satan? Just raise your hand. I hope not. I hope nobody's ever good. Nobody here in the room. You know what? Did you know Jesus called Peter Satan at one point? Why? Because Peter was trying to get Jesus to do something that Jesus wasn't supposed to do, and Jesus literally turned around and said, get behind me, Satan. He was basically saying, shut up. I'm not going to listen to that. I know what God's got me here for. Why would they include that story if that didn't really happen? I mean, Peter was the, the, the rock of the church, right? Like he's, he's like this incredible leader. Why paint him in a bad light? Why make all the disciples abandoned Jesus after the crucifixion. Do you know, by the way, who told us they all abandoned Jesus after the crucifixion? Matthew and John, who were two of the guys who abandoned Jesus after the crucifixion. If you're trying to get people to follow you, if you're trying to get political power, religious power, financial gain, and you're making this up, you never say you abandoned the leader of all this. You paint yourself to look really great. Number seven, why would they have had uh, I'm sorry, why would they have had Jesus asking his father if there was some other way to save humanity than his death on the cross, right? In the garden, he's praying, oh God, if there's another way. If there's another way. Verse eight, or not verse eight, number eight. They wouldn't have written fiction like that, okay? If they were making up this story in the first century, that's not how fiction was written in the first century. How do we know that? Well, C.S. Lewis talks about that. Many of you guys know C.S. Lewis as this incredible apologist and author and fiction writer, right? The Chronicles of Narnia. So if anybody knew anything about fiction writing, it's him. And he tells us that in the first century, the way that they wrote in the details, the places, the time, the mood, the emotions, what people were feeling, all the minute details, that's not how fiction was written in the first century. It was written like this because it was history, not fiction. Next one, number nine. And this is another big kind of point. We're going to keep on adding sub points to this. You ready? It was recorded too soon to be a hoax. It was recorded too soon after the resurrection to be fake and made up. New Testament scholars say that Matthew was written between 65 and 85 AD, Mark between 60 and 75, Luke between 65 and 95, John between 75 and 100. So some of these are within 30 years of those events happening. Why does that matter? Because if that's within 30 years of the resurrection, then there are a lot of ways to research and, and people who would have been alive in that time who could call them out and say, no, this isn't what happened. Jesus didn't raise back from the dead. This guy's making this up. But that's not what happened. You have this group of Christians, not just like a few. You have all these Christians spreading the message of Christianity. The whole first century culture of that area transformed. We're going to talk about that next week going out and sharing this to the point where they're willing to be killed and die for their faith. And it's all hinging on this resurrection. And this is just 30 years after the resurrection. 
When I was a kid, there was a Christian comedian named Mike Warnke, really funny guy. He would go around, and he would like go to churches and stuff and schools, and he would do his comedy and tell people his story. And his story was really compelling. It was that he grew up, and I believe he said he was in the military for a while, and then he was actually got into like the occult, and he was a Satanist, and then like God like came into his life, and everything changed, and God rescued his life, and it was this incredible story. The only problem was the whole part about the military and being a Satanist and the occult was all made up. And people who knew him years before called him on it. So we knew Mike at that point. This is not what happened. And it was a really sad thing, honestly, that someone would go through that and do that for probably, honestly, popularity and financial gain at that time. But the same thing could easily have happened to all these guys. Just 30 years after the resurrection, Matthew and John, these other guys, could have so easily been called out like, oh, no, that's not at all what happened. But instead, people over and over and over again gave their lives saying this was the truth. Number 10, the first accounts of Jesus' resurrection were written only 15 to 20 years after the resurrection by Paul. So now you're just a little bit out, and Paul is writing about Jesus being alive and the world being turned upside down. Again, easy to investigate, right? The people of that time, just 15, 20 years after all this happened, could just march to the grave and, hey, Jesus' body's still in there. It's right there. Eyewitnesses could have been interviewed and talked to. Number 11, we have a piece of John's manuscript dated to 125 AD. Number 12, Papias wrote in 130 AD that Mark and Matthew had written. And I think this is important because a guy like Papias wasn't in the scripture. You're not going to find his name in the Bible. But this is a guy in the first century, or, or I'm sorry, who's, who's out here in 130 AD saying, Mark and Matthew wrote Mark and Matthew. This is legit, and you can take this seriously. And again, remember what's happening to Christians at that time if they talk about this stuff. They're imprisoned, they're beaten, they're killed. In 175 AD, Titian writes this thing called the Diatessaron, and he puts four Gospels harmonized into one work. In 180 AD, Irenaeus names Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the Gospel writers. Remember, Irenaeus was a student of Polycarp, who was a student of John. John gave... Uh, himself over to being beaten and imprisoned. Polycarp was burned at the stake, and Irenaeus took the job of a guy who gave his life saying Jesus was alive. And so I'm pretty sure Irenaeus got this right. It was recorded too soon to be a hoax. Next one, number 15. Again, this is a big point here. It was recorded too accurately to be a hoax. What do I mean by that? Number 16, the first century was all about oral tradition. In other words, people would speak out stories. You know, it wasn't like sometimes I think we have this picture in our mind, like there was a guy in a cave off by himself, like just writing all this stuff down. No, oral tradition about the resurrection, about uh, the crucifixion, about Jesus' followers and what they went through. They would tell these stories and tell these stories and tell these stories and call out things that were said wrong. You know, in the first century, um, different rabbis would memorize whole books of the Bible, like their, their memory system was a whole, on a whole different level than yours and mine. And they would constantly keep stories alive through telling them. When my kids were little, we played Pictionary with them a lot. And my youngest, Landon, when he was like two or three, he just didn't get the concept of quite how this worked. He just wanted you to get the right answer so bad that he'd be drawing, and then within a matter of like two or three seconds, if you didn't get it, he's like, want a hint? You're like, okay. And he'd be like, it's a rhino. <laughs> That's not how this works. Like, come on, man. Right? Like, Landon didn't get the concept of keeping this quiet and, and concealing and and the first century was, was just like Landon. We're going to get the message out. We're going to say it out loud, right? We're going to make sure we're clear on this. Mark Roberts says this about the oral tradition of the first century. 
He says, imagine playing telephone out loud. Not very fun, but accurate. And so they would tell the story over and over again and call out wrong details. Number 17, another huge proof that we can trust the New Testament, the unbelievable amount of, of manuscript copies of the New Testament. We have about 25,000 manuscript copies. Everybody say 25,000. So compare that to any other ancient writing, the closest one we have is Homer's Iliad with 643 surviving copies. So we have over 24,000 more copies of New Testament manuscripts than, any, uh, than, than the closest um, surviving work in Homer's Iliad. Number 18, the church fathers of the first, second, and third century, guys like Arrhenius and Clement and Justin Martyr, quoted the New Testament over 36,000 times. Everybody say 36,000. 36, Think about that. Someone was yawning. 36,000. All right. <laughs> Come on, emphasis, emphasis. We're in this together. 36,000 times these guys are quoting what the New Testament writers said. And again, I love this because it's first, second, and third century writers here. So again, it's not that argument of why would you take the Bible seriously. It's the Bible. Of course, it's going to say that. You're not talking about just the Bible anymore. You're talking about first, second, and third century writers talking about how true the Bible is and quoting it over 36,000 times. David Dalrymple was a historian in the 1700s. And I want you to read this with me. Somebody asked him if the New Testament had been destroyed and every copy of it lost by the end of the third century, could it have been collected together again from the writings of, uh, I'm sorry, the writings of the fathers of the second and third century? So in other words, if the New Testaments were completely destroyed Nero got his hands on them all. Somebody in the early, you know, whatever, got, got their hands on them all and destroyed them all. Then could, just with the, the writings of the early church fathers, could you actually put the whole, the whole thing back together again? And here's what it says. After a great deal of investigation, Dalrymple concluded, that question roused my curiosity, and as I possessed all the existing works of the fathers of the second and third centuries, I commenced to search, and up to this time, I found the entire New Testament except 11 verses. So all those 36,000 quotes from all those early church fathers could put back the New Testament just shy those 11 verses because that's how convinced this was they were this was real this was true this was something to give their lives for now we're not going to get into, into history too much because we're going to do that in the coming weeks but verse or chapter <laughs> i'm not used to not saying verse or chapter here number 19 the bible's historical reliability the Bible's historical reliability. It was not thrown together by pranksters. It was painstaking how they put this together and how correct they were about different historical events. Luke 1, verse 1 to 4. Read this with me. It says, Many have attempted to write about what has taken place among us. They received their information from those who had been eyewitnesses. Say eyewitnesses. eyewitnesses. And servants of God's word from the beginning. And they passed it on to us. I too have followed everything closely from the beginning. So I thought it would be a good idea to write an orderly account for your excellency, Theophilus. In this way, you will know that what you've been told is true. Luke is like, I was not messing around when I went and I interviewed the eyewitnesses. I was not just half-heartedly writing stuff out. I wasn't making it up. I made sure it was accurate and true. 
Sir William Ramsey is a famous historian archaeologist, and he says this about Luke. Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. The author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. Luke's history is unsurpassed in its respect, in respect of its trustworthiness. The next one, number 20. Archaeology confirms what the Bible says. And again, we're not going to get too into this, but it's incredible when you begin to look into it, how archaeology lines up with the, what the Bible says. Jewish archaeologist Nelson Gluick says this. Read this with me. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a single biblical reference. Scores of archaeology findings have, made, have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements of the Bible. Give you an example. In 1961, an Italian archaeologist named Antonia Frova discovered an inscription on a stone slab, and it said this. Does anybody want the meatballs? No, that's not what it said. That's not what it said. Sorry. No, what it says is, I got distracted there. This is crazy. Everybody say Tiberium. Pontius Pilate. Prefect of Judea. So this shows that Pontius Pilate was a real person who ruled in Judea during the time of Tiberius. Now, Let's look at Luke 3.1, which says the same exact thing. It was the 15th year in the reign of the emperor Tiberius, Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. And that's just, again, in 1961 that was discovered, that that was written out. And you see how it lines up with what the Bible has to say. Number 21. Okay, big heading here. There's tons of evidence to prove the disciples weren't pulling a hoax or mistaken about Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what some people say. Well, maybe they were wrong. Maybe they, they didn't get it right. Maybe Jesus you know, survived the cross or whatever it might be. Well, number 22. The disciples weren't seeing a mirage. We know that they were talking with Jesus. They felt his hands. They touched his side. He cooked them breakfast. They were not seeing a mirage. Over 500 people saw him at the same time. 500 people don't have the same mirage, right? They don't have the same false vision. These are people who spoke with and talked to and touched Jesus. Verse 20, or number 23, the disciples were tortured, imprisoned, and killed for saying Jesus was alive. You don't do that. We spent our whole week last week. You don't do that if it's a lie. And they weren't killed for what they believed. They were killed for what they saw with their own eyes. Number 24, last one today. There's no way Jesus survived the cross. Maybe he didn't actually die. Maybe he was still alive. Maybe they you know, pulled his body off the cross and then he fooled everybody and he never actually officially died, but then was able to make everybody think he had risen from the dead. A few reasons that's not true. Number one, Roman guards faced death if they allowed anyone to survive a crucifixion. So when the Roman guards took him off the cross, they were going to make sure he was actually dead. In fact, that's why they put that spear in his side, as the scriptures tell us. Another reason we know he didn't survive the cross, how would someone recover from what Jesus went through and then convince people he had risen from the dead just three days later? A lot of you guys know my story. I almost died several times in the span of uh, December into February. And my recovery from that took me Months and months and months. I'm still recovering. I'm very close, but I'm still not 100%. And I went through nothing compared to what Jesus went through, being beaten and whipped to the point of death, being punched and kicked and spit on, have a crown of thorns, then crucified, bleeding out, then speared in the side. How, three days later, is he going to rally a following of people who are willing to give their lives, saying, yes, Jesus is alive. I couldn't walk for weeks, 
And I went through not, not, nothing compared to what Jesus went through. There's no way that he survived the cross and fooled anybody with what he then said about rising from the dead. Another interesting thought here about Jesus surviving the cross. J. Warner Wallace has written some incredible books on all this, talking about the resurrection. And he was a cold case detective, didn't believe in Jesus. And he looked into Jesus using his cold case detective skills. Pretty cool. And he then became a follower of Jesus. He realized, wow, this is true. And I want you to see what he says about something surrounding the death of Jesus. It says this. You can read it with me. The Gospels record the fact that the guards stabbed Jesus and observed both blood and water. Everybody say blood and water. Pouring from his body. That's an important observation, given that the Gospel writers were not coroners or medical doctors. While I'm certainly not a doctor, I've been to my share of coroners' autopsies and I've spoken at length with coroners investigators at crime scenes. When people are injured to the point of death, such as the result of an assault or traffic accident, they often enter into some form of circulatory shock prior to dying due to the fact that their organs and body tissues are not receiving adequate blood flow. This can sometimes result in either pericardial effusion, increased fluid in the membrane surrounding the heart, or pleural effusion, increased fluid in the membrane surrounding the lungs. When Jesus was pinned to the cross in an upright position following the terrible flogging he received, it's reasonable to expect that this kind of effusion might have taken place in response to the circulatory shock he suffered prior to dying. These fluids would certainly pour out of his body if he were pierced with a spear. While the gospel writers might expect to see blood, their observation of the water is somewhat surprising. It is certainly consistent with the fact that Jesus was already dead when stabbed by the guard. And so Jesus didn't survive the cross and then fool everybody. No, he was killed, and he was placed in a grave, and he rose back from the dead. And we've looked at what the eyewitnesses have said. We've looked at some history, some archaeology. We've looked at a bunch of reasons why the writers of the scriptures wouldn't have said or done certain things if they were making this up. We've looked at how it was recorded too soon to be a hoax, too accurately to be a hoax. And we've seen here that Jesus was not faking his death on the cross. 24 reasons that you and I can see and celebrate that what the Bible says about Jesus can be trusted. That's our sixth piece of the chair. What the Bible says about Jesus can be trusted. We have to trust it because it's the greatest source of our understanding of the story, that these eyewitnesses saw these things and then was willing to give their lives, saying it was true. And so you can trust what the Bible has to say about Jesus. And I want you to think for a second about how incredible the Bible is. It was written over a 1,500-year span. Everybody say 1,500 it has over more, uh, excuse me, more than 40 authors, every walk of life. You've got fishermen, tax collectors, kings, shepherds, poets, scholars, military leaders, written in different places, different times, different moods. It was written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and yet it all fits perfectly together. Many of the authors didn't know each other, but their message is the same. Many of the books of the Bible, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or say Chronicles and King, tell the same stories, but were written by different people. And so some of you say, oh, well, I know what happened. 
So maybe, I don't know, 1,000 A.D., some guy, he, he got all this, this idea in his head, and he, he just wrote the whole Bible, like Genesis through Revelation, and this way he was able to make it all seem like one story with all these fake different authors and all these incredible events. Well, we know that didn't happen because the different pieces of different books of the Bible have been found in different places, written in different languages at different times. All the same message. What the Bible says about Jesus can be trusted. And if what the Bible says about Jesus can be trusted, then Jesus can be trusted. So let's just shift from our head to our heart for a second. I pray you've learned some things today. I pray that it's gotten down deep into your, your own heart and, and you have some answers for others and you can encourage others. Maybe today you're going, wow, I really think Jesus is alive like he could be my savior and the rescuer of mankind this is incredible but i pray now let's talk about our heart because if the gospels can be trusted and the new testament accounts can be trusted then jesus can be trusted to listen to save you to remove your guilt and shame to provide for you to heal you and i after massive emotional brokenness we've walked through in these last 18 months some of you guys are like, oh man, the last 18 months were bad, but I was already in a bad place. He's faithful to bring healing and life put back together, the pieces, the brokenness, all of it. Like These are promises of our God to us. The God that we just read about made little Luke, right? Little Luke who we just dedicated, who formed him in the womb, but also like stretched out the sky, and, and created all things, like this God can be trusted. So my question for you today is you leave. Let me give you two questions. First off, who can you share your faith with? Who can you invite next week? Who can you share the stream with? Because this is hope to a lost and broken world. But, but secondly, what are you going to do with those areas of your life that you need to trust Jesus with? Yesterday we had a lot of fun at the fall party, but one of my favorite parts of it was talking with many of you and just getting updates on many of your lives. And many of you said the same thing without realizing it, and maybe you didn't say it this exact way, but, but the theme was, in several of my conversations yesterday, I've been able to trust Jesus with my life, and he's faithful. Like, I could trust him. Life's been really hard. I spoke with a guy yesterday, he went through a horrific medical issue for many months. And his takeaway was, I'm so thankful I had God and I trusted him through this. What a difference he makes in my life. I talked with others and even into today who are facing situations in crisis with their jobs, with their families, relationships, just their own personal status, their own health, their own emotional well-being. And this theme of, but God, but I trust God, but he's with me, but he has me, he's going to come through. If we can trust what the Bible says about Jesus, then we can trust Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to bring him those issues of your heart today and say, I trust you, I trust you. I don't get it right now, I don't get why, I don't get the hurt, I don't understand how and when and why, but Lord, I'm gonna trust you. If you're alive, I can trust you. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you wanna put your trust in him today, I'm gonna give you a chance to do that now. But thank God for the sixth piece. Thank God that the evidence points to God and truth and power are found in Jesus alone and sacrifice and substitution of the story of the whole Bible. Thank God for the prophecies. Thank God for the eyewitnesses. And thank God that the New Testament can be trusted, that what it tells us about a risen Savior we can take seriously. And then we can know that we can trust him. Let's pray.
Jesus, we are so grateful that we can trust you, Lord. We're so thankful, God, that you have not left us to try to figure this out, but God, you've left us a beautiful trail of evidence that you are active and good and alive and well, that Jesus, you have risen back from the dead, that you've left us so much, Lord, to be able to celebrate and also to cling to in the midst of real hardship. If you're a follower of Jesus, can you just name something that you need to trust this Savior with? If you're not a follower of Jesus and you want to put your trust in him today, I'd love for you to pray with me now. You could just pray something like this quietly to God. Jesus, thank you for coming to rescue me. Thank you for saving me from my sin. Thank you for loving me and wanting me. Thank you for the way that you were willing to suffer in my place. Today I put my trust in you. I ask you to be my Savior, my Lord, and my God. Show me how real you are and how awesome it is to follow you and be called yours. In your name.